You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to this episode of the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Meryl, a clinical nurse specialist in cancer services, about oncological emergencies, ways in which we might be able to identify these oncological emergencies in the pre-hospital setting, and based on her experiences, what the types of treatments are available. This episode was recorded at the beginning of lockdown, so apologies, the sound quality isn't quite as good as we would like, but we hope you find the content interesting. Welcome to this podcast um, episode on palliative and oncological emergencies. Uh, I'm hosting today. Um, Owen, unfortunately, isn't here. Uh, My name is Caroline Phillips, um, and I am one of the Macmillan Paramedic Programme Leads for the London Ambulance Service. And um, it is with huge pleasure that uh, I introduce Meryl Van Klinken to this episode. Hi, Meryl. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for for um, agreeing to do this episode with us. And um, it's a real pleasure. I will um, first of all just um, introduce Meryl a little bit. Um, Meryl is a, um, a specialist cancer oncological and palliative care nurse. And um, she works in Antoni van Leeuwenhoek Hospital. It's a specialist cancer hospital in the Netherlands. Have I pronounced that correctly, Meryl? Yes, perfect. Brilliant. And um, you're working there as, a, as an oncology and palliative care nurse, and so you're really specialist in, in cancer. And you also have a master's degree in nursing sciences, and you're also studying some of their palliative care masters at King's College London too. Uh, and you're currently working on an oncology um, inpatient ward. So we absolutely have a specialist with us today to talk about cancer um, and oncological emergencies. Uh, and um, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your role at the moment, Meryl. What does your day-to-day sort of work life look like? Well, first of all, thank you for the perfect introduction. <laughs> um, my work, working days, well, they kind of differ a little bit because sometimes I am during the weekdays I am mostly working at the palliative care team in our hospital uh, where we see patients in the palliative and terminal phase of their illness and we have a lot of talks about end-of-life care and other days I work in the inpatient unit in the the medical unit where we see patients receiving chemo but also we're treating the side effects of the chemo and we provide end-of-life care. So I, ha- I think I have the perfect combination. And, and it's, uh, it's quite busy where you are. How many um, sort of patients are you looking after within the wards sort of day by day, roughly? Um, during the day, we probably have, I probably have about five patients under me. And um, at the night, uh, in the evening shifts, I have probably eight. And during the night, I had, there's just one nurse in the whole ward. So we 
provide care for 16 patients by ourselves. Yeah, yeah, very busy. So um, so it's really fantastic um, that you're able to speak with us today because in this episode, um, we're talking about the oncological emergencies, which are... um, really relevant and something that as pre-hospital clinicians and paramedics and other ambulance and clinicians we need to be really mindful of because I think we all understand that patients in their final stages of life um, we term end of life uh, within the final 12 months of of a patient's life um, give or take because it's quite hard to you know prognosticate exactly but um, we understand that the majority of patients prefer to have their care at home or in the community. But there are a few situations that we need to be really mindful of. Um, and, and some of those are specifically the oncological, so relating to cancer, um, emergencies which can arise when a patient has cancer, uh, whether they're having treatment or not. Um, And um, specifically, this episode is going to be focusing on the three which are referenced within um, our JR Calc clinical practice guidelines, which are superior vena cava obstruction, um, spinal cord compression and neutropenic sepsis. And um, I think it's it's fair to say, Meryl, that you've got quite a bit of experience in in looking after these patients um, suffering with these conditions. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, you're correct. Um, we actually have a, some, some, a small emergency room here at the hospital where patients are first seen when, with complaints or with symptoms. And then um, when they are first assessed, they will be transferred to the wards. So we see a lot of the patients with these types of symptoms in our hospital. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so, Meryl, you've really kindly, I've asked you to prepare um, some case examples. So um, Meryl's going to be speaking um, about each condition and specifically relating to a patient that, um, that she can remember. Um, for all three conditions and um, it's a really good opportunity to hear from you because actually pre-hospitally we we don't really see and we certainly don't see the diagnosis very often of the patients that we attend and going to oncological emergencies is actually quite quite rare for us Um, but it does happen and we need to be mindful and aware of the symptoms so to be able to draw on your experience is a real is uh, really fantastic so thank you and um, perhaps we could start off with um, talking about the condition spinal cord compression could you tell us a little bit about the patient that you had in mind Uh, well we once had a patient um, she was a young a female, I think she was about 35 years old, um, and she was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, and um, she presented herself to us with uh, kind of a, a tingling numbness in the legs. Uh, so she came to our hospital with the ambulance, uh, and we did some imaging. It's usually MRI. She did, she did get an MRI where they saw that the spinal cord was, um, yeah, it was compressed due to a metastasis in the vertebra. 
Um, so that explains the tingling and the numbness. It's, it's kind of a mixed feeling. She, she found it kind of hard to describe it. Um, and as, as soon as she came in, we started her on steroids. So we, somebody always gets dexamethasone at first when she, when even before the MRI is, is performed. Uh, and then when the MRI, when the imaging is there, we can make a better plan for the patient. So she was admitted to hospital and she received, um, she received radiation therapy two times in one week. Um, radiation takes a little bit of time to have the optimum effect. So we took her in for a couple of weeks, I think. I think it was two or three weeks. And uh, then she regained some of the feeling in the leg. She was able to walk a little bit, small steps, uh, and we were able to send her back home. So that's one of the cases that comes to mind. That's that's really interesting, Meryl. So so this lady had had breast cancer, and I yeah. think what's what's quite interesting for us is that as as pre hospital clinicians, we do focus um, quite a bit on the red flags to do with back pain, and and the, the common ones that we're aware of are the the numbness in the legs and the tingling in the legs, and sometimes some saddle anaesthesia. But um, we often associate that with a, an injury to the lower back, the, the sort of cord equina region. But this lady had um, spinal cord compression, presumably a little bit higher up because it was um, as a result of breast cancer. Is that right? That's right. Well, you can, you can have it on, on kind of the whole back area due to the metastases. So if it's in the vertebra, the location doesn't really matter, but it can be very high as well. Yeah, mm. yeah. And and from your from your sort of clinical experience, Meryl, um, we we are aware that that with spinal cord compression as a result of cancer, the, the pathophysiology can be that the tumor itself, which grows and then compresses on the on the vertebrae and then the spinal cord itself, but um, but. Also, like in this case, the the cancer has metastasized to the bone, and then and then presumably the bone has has crumbled, which has caused the compression. Is that is that right? And is that the more common pathophysiology in your experience? I think the more common pathophysiology is the compression due to metastases, um, but tumor growth also happens that it just presses against the spinal cord. Uh, and another uh, kind of scenario that could also happen is that the metastases in the bones can cause fracture and that can cause spinal cord compression in itself. So I think there are kind of three scenarios that can happen. The first one is the metastases from the cancer which cause the spinal cord compression um, then there's the tumor growth itself that can cause the compression. And you can also have metastases in the bones, which can fracture, and then the fracture will cause for the compression to happen. Can I ask, how, uh, what types of, of cancer are the, the sort of common ones which 
can can lead to the the spinal cord compression. I understand that it's it's usually a little bit higher up, so more sort of in the thoracic region. Would that be right from your experience? Well, typically, all kinds of cancers that can metastases to the bones can cause the spinal cord compression. So it's it's a large variation of types of cancers, actually. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Um, so with this this lady that came into you, um, how, how what sort of signs and symptoms did she have? You said they were quite quite vague, but she'd clearly lost a bit of the sensation in her leg. Could you yeah. explain sort of the the clinical um, signs that she had and a little bit about her history? How long had she had she had pain? How long had she had it? And and that sort of thing. Well, she didn't really complain about pain actually. So. It is a common symptom, but it doesn't always have to happen. Um, when people have experienced pain, they the pain usually increases when they are lying down or when uh, there's a sort of a pressure buildup. So, if, for example, if they're sneezing, uh, then the pain is very much increased. So when patients complain about this, it kind of tends to look like a spinal cord compression. Um, in this particular case, uh, the patient, as I described, had numbness in the legs and sort of a tingling feeling. She also had uh, difficulty uh, with holding in her urine. Um, so we also gave her a catheter. And she had walking disabilities. So those were her main symptoms. Um, she had become ill, I think, in the previous year. Uh, and already the, the bone metastases were already there. She knew that she had them. So this was not a total surprise to her. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in some cases, patients who develop spinal cord compression as a result of, of cancer, sometimes it can be their first presentation, can't it? So they're, they're not even aware, the opposite almost, it, you know, compared to this lady. Sometimes they're not even aware that they have cancer and, and then this might be the first symptom of their cancer. Does, does that happen very often in your experience? Not very often, but it, it can happen. Mm, mm. And then... The, the normal uh, way for seeing this is also with an MRI. So p patients will go into a regular hospital. They won't come in our hospital because we already we only have cancer patients. Um, so they get sent off to a, a normal hospital, so to say, and then they get an MRI there, and sometimes they get transferred to us. Yeah, right. I think um, something that's really tricky, um, what you just mentioned about the, the pain and how it, it, the pain can often come on if it's there, if it's present, the pain can come on with straining and, and with sneezing and, and when lying down. And that's, yeah. that's particularly tricky for us because our guidelines um, and the recommendation from our, from our NICE guidelines actually generally in the UK, as well as the ambulance practice guidelines, are that if we have a patient who has those neurological symptoms, so the, the any of those kind of red flags, weakness, um, tingling, changes to sensation, bladder and bowel dysfunction, um, we should, and we're suspecting spinal cord compression, we should manage these patients with a neutral spine and we should um, lay them down and, and minimise that movement um, in order to make sure that we're not 
potentially making that neurological deficit any worse is that yeah. something that you do um, in hospital as well is that important um when a patient first presents itself we usually do uh take those precautions um when we have some imaging we can look further and sometimes we have to ask um uh, physiotherapy if a patient can move or can come out of bed or um sometimes we have special i don't know what's it called in english but when a patient is kind of like a, a tree log and we can only turn a patient on the side yeah. straight and on the back again that sometimes happens so i think it's the right precaution to take when you you don't really know what's happening yet yeah absolutely yes we call that a log roll so very similar and um i think what's really positive to to know is that and especially in the case of this lady um that that after a bit of treatment so steroids were given initially before the mri you know it's so much of of an emergency that you get those steroids on board early and then once confirmation happened there was radiation treatment for her and actually some of her neurological symptoms resolved so actually in in some cases this this really um, sort of careful treatment and management of the patient can can actually um, allow for a little bit of return of those neurological um, functions, which is clearly so important for patients and their their quality of life, regardless of the stage of their illness and and what what sort of potential prognosis they have. Yeah, that's true. However, um, we do have to be mindful because radiotherapy usually takes a couple of weeks to have its maximum effect. Um, so when a patient is in the in the terminal phase of illness, you probably don't get the benefit of the radiation. And then it, it would be kind of an invasive treatment because you have to lie down on the table um, so you do have to be mindful in choosing which therapy is best. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I, I guess, the, the main message for us really not knowing the patient and, and not really um, being experts at all in, in palliative care is is that we would always um, refer on, we would always contact their specialist and if they didn't have one, we would we would um, take the patient to the ED so that they can have those sort of difficult, sort of complex conversations about about treatment and the side effects. That's great. Thank you so much, Meryl. Should we should we move on to case study number two? Which sure. Is brilliant. Thank you. So so the next um, case I asked Meryl to present was um, a patient who was suffering with superior vena cava compression uh, and this is where often it's the, the tumour which is actually compressing the superior vena cava so that main blood vessel which is going up to the, the top of the patient's body and the head and the, the, up, the upper part of the thorax. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this patient and how they presented Meryl? Yeah sure um, so this is um, a man about 50, uh, 56 year old and he presented himself to the uh, our emergency ward with um, edema of the face. He had a very swollen face and his shoulders also a little bit. And he was very um, dyspneic. 
and he has a he sounded very hoarse so he, he couldn't speak normally he felt like he was kind of hold, held back to speak um and he um we did a ct scan when he came in um and it showed he had a superior vena cava uh, compression and he actually received a, a stent um, also the uh, steroids also dexamethasone is usually given in, a, in acute situations and he received a stent and um, it kind of all his complaints went away as soon as he had the stent actually within a day he felt better and the fluids the edema from his face just resolved in a couple of days and and he was sent home that's that's really incredible isn't it and um the the superior vena cava compression is is commonly a sort of pathology that builds up over the case of a, a few weeks is that right yeah that's true yeah, yeah. and so had, had he been had he been suffering with with vague sort of symptoms of oedema and, and dyspnea for for some days or some weeks that you remember yeah he did he he kind of complained about uh, dyspnea especially um but he kind of always found a reason to explain it <laughs> so um when the edema in his face uh, kind of built it up he he did call our hospital and then we we actually said you have to come in right away so he did but he he kind of gradually progressed in his dyspnea that was his mo- his yeah main complaint right okay and and um, Meryl, what what type of cancer did he have, and what when sort of what cancers do you see this commonly in? Uh, this guy had esophagus cancer, uh, and you mostly see this in 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 lung cancer, mama cancer, and I think it's the non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Yeah, non-Hodgkin. Mm-hmm. So those are mostly the types of cancer where they that there's a real pressure on the vein. Mm. And, and in most cases, would you say that the, the main sort of the underlying concern would be for patients would be the difficulty in breathing, the shortness of breath? Yeah, the, uh, the main symptoms people experience are the, the edema of the face and the dyspnea as well. Um, they also can have a very dilated vein in the neck yeah. where you can just see it pulsing. Um, patients can also complain about headaches and dizziness because of the edema in the brain. And sometimes uh, nosebleeds can occur. Um, those are the most common symptoms I've experienced in my practice. And, and I guess really it, it, it is what it says on the tin, isn't it? The superior vena cava is, is being compressed. So yeah. all of that volume is is really struggling to return back down to the heart, isn't it? Hence all of those symptoms sort of ending up in the in the top end, really, sort of above the level of the heart, um, yeah. and sometimes into the arms, and um, that that I guess is is the is the cause, isn't it? And it and it's it's quite tricky, um, I would imagine, for you to be caring for a patient with superior vena cava compression because. That movement and leaning down and, and bathing that can really sort of exacerbate the symptoms. Is that is that something that you find challenging? Uh, 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, the symptoms can get worse when patients bend forward or even when they're lying flat on their backs. So uh, you have to help them keep their heads up. Um, I think usually when patients come into the hospital, we totally take over the care for them. So they, they really don't have to do anything until they're feeling better. Um, so we're kind of providing in that as, as a hospital to totally be the main carer at that point for the patient. Yeah, that mu- must be a big demand on, on sort of both your service and, you know, that, that sort of symptom burden for the patients. Do yeah. you, we, we are very much um, in, in the UK pre-hospitality. We, we only treat our, our end-of-life care patients with, uh, with oxygen if they are hypoxemic, so if the saturations are low um, in, in these kind of circumstances. Do you find that the patients with superior vena cava compression, are they often hypoxic? Are you often required to administer administer them oxygen or is it more a case of uh, actually their saturations are normal and it's about pacing their movement and their their demand and their exercise uh i think all patients i saw here in this hospital uh complained about dyspnea um so even when the saturation levels are acceptable they do experience dyspnea. Um, so oxygen is a good idea at that point, especially when you don't really know what's happening yet. Yeah, that that's really that's really interesting, isn't it? And and um, that that really is quite a difference for us. But it makes total sense, you know, prior to your diagnosis that 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 would be the case. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. So. so did you have something else to add? No, no, sorry. Thanks so much. So, so moving on to the the third um, and final oncological condition, sort of palliative emergency that that we're really mindful of pre-hospitally, and perhaps something that we're a little bit more familiar with um, is neutropenic sepsis. Yeah. So, um, neutropenic sepsis. Uh, how common in your experience is, is neutropenic sepsis in, in cancer patients? Is it something that you're, you're managing very frequently in, in your ward? Yes, very, very frequently. <laughs> A lot of patients experience neutropenic sepsis when on chemo. Yeah, and I, and I think um, sometimes we can, we can associate chemotherapy with with active treatment of cancer but but actually sometimes in the patient's final 12 months of life they will still be having chemotherapy won't they yes yeah absolutely and and regardless actually really of the prognosis whether they are pre or or post that 12 month uh, uh, diagnosis if a patient is is on chemotherapy, we have a very high index of suspicion for neutropenic sepsis because of um, such such a high risk for these patients. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about neutropenic sepsis and, and why it comes about? Um, well, patients receiving chemo, um, chemotherapy is, is aimed to kill the cancer cells, 
but actually chemotherapy is going to kill all uh, quickly dividing cells if i don't know if i described that correctly but that makes sense yeah. uh, um so not only cancer cells are being attacked but also the blood cells the uh, cells of the um gi tissue um so most problems will occur there and usually it takes about 10 to 14 days after chemo then patients are at their fragile moments and they can uh, develop neutropenic sepsis um so they would have to be on chemo but it, it is also common in immunotherapy which is very commonly prescribed these days you can also see neutropenic sepsis yeah absolutely and, and I think um sometimes um something that we sort of forget perhaps is that with the chemotherapy there is a real breakdown of those softer tissues isn't there sort of in the in the oral mucosa and and down into the esophagus um, but the symptoms can be quite vague. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the case that you had in mind? Uh, well, it was kind of difficult to select just one case because we see it here all the time. I think in my ward of, of 16 beds, I think probably half of the patients are uh, on average uh, admitted with nitropenic sepsis. Um, but mostly uh, a patient that comes to mind is, is um, a female, uh, um, she had chemotherapy for uh, lymphoma and um, she was in her house and she, was, she wasn't feeling feverish, but she was, she was feeling sick. She had the shivers and she had kind of a, a little cough. Um, so she, she came into the ward, um, still no fever. <laughs> Um, but we did do some blood tests and um, we knew it was, uh, I think it was the 12th day after her first chemo. Um, and she was just feeling more and more sick when she came in. Uh, so we, when she came in, we started her on fluids. We started her on uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. And as soon as uh, some of the fluids were in, I think it was a couple of hours later, she already felt a little bit better. And then she started to develop the fever. So it, it can be tricky to recognize neutropenic sepsis in the, ha- in the home, I think. Yeah, I think that you've really just hit the nail on the head, Meryl, in that, you know, something that I'm always really mindful about is that fever is so often absent in these in these cases. And, and this is really where perhaps our thinking as pre-hospital clinicians is is it does need to be challenged with, with the majority of patients that we see and we're suspecting sepsis in, we think, okay, they have a temperature, they have signs and symptoms, signs and symptoms of infection, but actually with our patients who, are, uh, who have cancer and who are being treated either with chemotherapy or the immunosuppressant, quite often that's not the case. And, and I'm really glad that you described that, that particular patient as having a, a, a normal fever, a, a normal temperature for some time, they were afebrile, um, because yeah. that's a really key thing, 
to, to, to think about and about how likely it is that actually the patient might have neutropenic sepsis regardless of their temperature or not. Um, and and you, you treat straight away with broad-spectrum antibiotics, much yeah. like this country, before your blood results even come back, uh, which I think really highlights the importance of quite aggressive and, and rapid treatment even when you are just suspecting and you haven't quite diagnosed yet. Yes, true. Patients can get very sick very quickly and they can even die from a a neutropenic sepsis if you don't treat. So you always have to start treatment. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I think certainly for us pre-hospitally, we, we always hope that the patient has got um, a special information chemotherapy card. Um, and that's definitely something I think that um, is key, really, to look out for if we are attending these patients in their home, because presumably we, we really don't want to be taking these patients to the emergency department. It's much better if we can take them direct to their place of care if and when possible and and that information is found on their on their chemotherapy card so I think um that do, do you find you get a lot of referrals from the emergency department into your unit with neutropenic sepsis or do you have a similar thing in place no we do we I think it's actually a good idea to provide patients with a card so when they are feeling very sick they don't have to talk for themselves they can just show the paramedics the card but we don't work like that patients who are treated here in this hospital can always call our own emergency service uh, and then we decide if they have to come in or not and when they do come in they they always just get a bed somewhere in this hospital so they are always in the right place. I think that's different from uh, regular hospitals because then they do need to go to the emergency room and where they might get infected even more because they are just, um, I don't know how you say it in English, they, they just get into a, a sort of a threatening situation with more and more patients who are who can also have infections. Um, so the, the system is a little bit different because I think we are a specialised hospital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um I think your patients are very fortunate to be able to have that. And, and I guess really the key message for us pre-hospitally is that try and find the information of the person that is caring for that patient and providing the chemotherapy. So look for that card. We use something in London called Coordinate My Care. So we should so check electronically to see if they've got a record so that we can find those details of the, the nurses and the other medical staff that are caring for the patient. Um, to to try and um, avoid the ED where possible and and have that conversation with the person that knows their care the best. Um, Thank you. That makes perfect sense. And and also, you know, the the fact that um, if the patient is is hypotensive, um, fluid is given, and and if they're hypoxemic, oxygen is given, is very standard um, across both pre-hospital and in hospital by the sounds of things. Yeah, I think you're right. The, the most important thing is when you think, expect somebody to have a neutropenic sepsis, always bring them in because, like you say, it's, it's vital that treatment starts very soon. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, we've come to the end of all your cases, um, Meryl. Thank you so much for, for providing those to us and, and for your clinical expertise and, and knowledge and your time. Um, and also Meryl is dialing in from, from uh, Holland as well. So thank you very much for doing this um, distance-wise. Well, I wonder, Meryl, if I could just ask very finally, um, in your... In your in your opinion, when you're caring for patients who are in their final sort of stages of life, their final 12 months of life, have you got one piece of general advice that you would say is the most important thing in your experience to, to provide care for these patients? Um, Tricky to narrow down just to one thing, I know. But yes. If you had one golden nugget of advice. Uh, well, what I would say is to... Uh, I actually have three words, advanced care planning. It is so important for patients in this phase of their illness. Um, know where the patients want to spend the, the last time of their life. Know where the preferred location of dying is for the patients. So then you can make a, a very sound judgment whether to take a patient in or not. Because usually patients, well, most patients want to die at home, but when they are admitted to hospital, it's more difficult to bring them back home. And usually they die at the hospital. And that is such a shame and it is unnecessary. So keep the conversation going and thinking about advanced care planning. And yeah, know the, the important things a patient wants in, in his final stages of life. Thank you so much, Meryl. Summed up perfectly. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed for your time. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.